Shalom and welcome to this week's lecture. And the title is The Art, the Art of Challah. Welcome to this week's um, lecture. And um, the title is The Art of Challah. The subtitle is Making Selflessness Selfless. Okay. So, before we get into why we're talking about challah and what is challah, we're going to start first talking about the modern-day issue because the entire purpose of teaching Hasidus is not to become abstract but to use the mystical abstract in becoming a practical, better person. So, what is the modern-day issue? I heard this great line in a conversation between two people, and I'm quoting to you. One said to the other, Do you know why everyone you love and help leave you and you are left a lonely man? Because even when you try to do something selfless, you make it selfish. And as I heard that line, it was like kaboom, shazam, unbelievable. And of course, <laughs> parenthetically speaking, you know, the Baal Shem Tov teaches us that everything that we hear and see is not observing someone else, but is about ourselves. And that line was like, wow. So, what an awesome insight. Only that I see this not limited to those who are outstanding in their selfishness and self-centeredness, but rather as a flaw embedded within the very DNA of human beings, albeit at different levels of quality and quantity, but I think it's there. Every human being at the core being of their very genetics is self-centered. Now, it takes a very serious level of awareness, prayer, and hard work in order to be able to loosen the grip of this self-centeredness embedded within us. More than ever, this awareness, prayer, and hard work to loosen the bonds of self-centeredness is pertinent when we are working on teshuvah, literally return, repentance, working on bringing about a tikkun, a correction for a past wrongdoing. Here we definitely have to be aware and conscious to try to make it not about me. In this lecture, we're going to explore the process in keeping our selflessness from becoming selfish. And just that you know, I always share the source of where I take my lecture from, what it's based on, so that anyone that wants to go to the source and do their own study on it can. This lecture is based primarily on a mimer, a Hasidic discourse the Rebbe delivered on this Shabbat in 1968, exploring the mystical dimension of the mitzvah of separating a portion of one's dough for challah. And now we're going to talk about the mitzvah of challah. So in this week's Torah portion, we are given the commandment of challah. Now let me just talk about this for a moment. Most of us, when we use the word challah, we think of the Shabbat bread. And the word challah has nothing what to do with Shabbat bread. I mean, think of the blessing you make. You make the same blessing on the Shabbat bread as you do on a slice of bread on Monday. It's hamotzi lechem mina aretz. Lechem, bread. That's what it is. However, there is a unique reason why we incorporated that the Shabbat bread should be called challah. And the reason for this is very simple, that because normally the breads that are we, we eat and we use during the week, we're not always careful it should be homemade bread. We go to the baker. But 
Jewish women have always had this personal, intimate fondness of when it comes to Shabbos, they break, they bake their own bread. And therefore, because everyone now is baking for Shabbat, everyone means on Friday, Thursday, whatever, therefore, the sages were concerned to remind everyone that when you bake bread, you make dough, before you bake it, you need to take a portion away from the dough and give that to the Kohen. Now, this is one of the 24 gifts that God imposed upon the tribes of Israel to give to the Kohen because they did not receive a portion in the land and they were dedicated to work in the holy temple on behalf of all the Jews. So Hashem gave them 24 gifts from which they would be able to sustain themselves. Now, once Torah tells you that this is taken as a gift to the Kohen, that piece is really, from the Jews' perspective, a gift to God that God said to give to the Kohen. The gift to God becomes holy. And there are entire laws on the level of purity that one has to have when they eat this. The Kohen. Now, because in today's day and age, the Kohanim are all in, in a level of spiritual impurity. And again, I want to just emphasize, when we talk about impurity, it doesn't mean sin. It means that any Kohen that, for example, went to one of the family members that he's allowed to go to a funeral, right? One of the seven family members, father, mother, brother, sister, son, daughter, and wife, and I mean, when applicable. So therefore, they became impure. We don't have the red heifer process, the red cow process in the holy temple to purify them. Thus, a Kohen today is not allowed to eat that portion which everyone has to give to the Kohen. So practically, just that you should know how it works today, is when you make the dough, and there's a certain size of the dough, for, you know, to how, many, how many egg sizes, a difference between if it's a baker or, or a homemaker. Um, and I put a link in the notes that you can actually look up practically how to do this mitzvah whenever you bake bread. Now, with that being said, today you separate the portion because you have to. You're not allowed to eat the bread if you don't. Now what happens is with that portion, there's a problem. You can't give it to the Kohen, as I said, but also you can't deface it actively because you cannot destroy something which is holy. So what normally the process is that you just let you just leave that piece on the side until it decomposes to a point where even a dog won't eat it. And in halacha, if a dog is not willing to eat it, it doesn't have the law of food no more. And thus, it's not considered anything that could be defaced. It's already, by the course of nature, been defaced. And then, you, you dispose of it. And others, uh, others are more careful. They don't want to just plain dispose of, dispose of it. They want to use it for, in the fire that you, you burn chametz. But however, that's practically speaking what you do. Now, I do know that in some communities, what they would do is they would actually take that piece and put it into the oven to burn in order to decompose, of, decompose it. And while they're baking the bread, they would just put that thing on the bottom of the oven. Many rabbis are very against that because you cannot actively decompose something that's holy. So that's just the practical side of the mitzvah of challah. But the actual mitzvah is, and you make a blessing on it, and again, I put a link in how you do this practically if today you want to bake challah for, for uh, Shabbat, or anytime you bake bread, you actually just cover the dough, make the blessing, put, pull away the piece of dough, and that is hafrashat challah, separating a piece. So the challah word has nothing what to do with what the Shabbat bread is. We just call it challah 
So when you say, what are you doing? Oh, I'm baking challah. Oh, I got to remember to do the mitzvah of challah. Separate the piece. Okay? That is in this week's Torah portion, which is why we're talking about the art of challah. Now, with that being said, I just want to read to you the verses just quickly. I want to quote to you three verses in the Torah as it said. And... And you eat from the bread of the land, you shall set aside a gift for God. The first portion of your dough, you shall separate a loaf for a gift. As in the case of the gift of the threshing floor, so shall you separate it. From the first portion of your dough, you shall give a gift to the Lord in all your generations. Okay, so now we know that this mitzvah, is not just in the times of the Holy Temple, it's in all generations. That leads us to the predicament that we have, that we have to separate it, but what do we do with it? But that's the mitzvah. Now, just the basics. The basics of the mitzvah is that you don't take some flour, some water, and put it aside. The mitzvah only begins when you've mixed the water with the flour, kneaded it, and it turned into dough. Now, this, this is the, the case, right? And you give it to the Kohen. Now, I want to share with you an interesting teaching. The teaching is found in three different places. It's in the Jerusalem Talmud. Most people know of the Talmud that was made in Babylon, Talmud Bavli, which really happened 200 years later after the first Talmud was made and that's called the Jerusalem Talmud. So this teaching I'm telling you is found in the Jerusalem Talmud. It's also found in a medrash called Tanchuma and also in a medrash called Bereshis Rabbah. I'm only going to quote one of the teachings and that is from Tanchuma. And they all say the same. They talk about how there are three mitzvot that were primarily given to the woman. And those three mitzvot actually spell out the female name Chana, Chet Nun Hey. Now this Chana, the Chet, is the mitzvah that we just spoke about, Chala. The Nun is all the mitzvahs that focus around the menstrual cycle. And the Hey is the mitzvah of Hadlakat Nerot, lighting Shabbos candles. Now, by the way, I just want to point out that even though these mitzvahs were given primarily to the woman, however, two of them, if there's no woman, a man does it. For example, if a man is baking, not a woman, a man is baking, he has to do the mitzvah of challah, separate the portion. Number two, if a man is alone in a house for Shabbat, he lights the candles. However, when there's a woman around, it's primarily the woman's job. Now, what I want to share with you is why were these three mitzvot dedicated primarily to the woman? And according to the medrash that I'm now going to actually read to you, you're going to see that it all stems in the fact that Eve was the one that first ate from the tree and she then fed it to Adam. And thus, these three mitzvot are a tikkun a soul correction for those mitzvahs. Let's see the words of our sages. So, it begins. And what did women see to these three mitzvot? And what, what is it, these three mitzvot that they took to themselves? And here is the, say, the answer. The Almighty said, Adam is racious. Racious means beginning, primary of my creations. And was commanded concerning the tree of knowledge. Commanded not to eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge. And concerning Eve it is written. And the woman saw. And gave it also to her husband with her to eat. Which caused him to die and shed his blood. Parenthetically speaking. God told Adam. That on the day that you will eat from this tree. You will die. In other words. Death was not part of the original plan. Death only came along because of the sin. Now, just again, parenthetically speaking, get off topic. What happens is God said on the day you will die. But he didn't die on the day. He actually lived to 930 years old. 
Thus we apply the verse in the scriptures that says that for God, a thousand years is a day before you. And thus, Adam was supposed to live a thousand years. He gave 70 years of his life to, to David. He saw that David was meant to be born a stillborn and wouldn't have no life. So he gave 70 years. A thousand minus 70 is 930. That's why he lived 930. Within the thousand, which is the day in God's eyes of when he ate the tree. Be it as it may, Eve, by getting Adam to eat from it, shed his blood, brought about death. And now, let's see, let's read further in the teaching. And it is written in the Torah, whoever sheds the blood of man, through man shall his blood be shed. In other words, a human who murders another human, his blood will be shed, the death penalty. But how, did, how does this play out here? Thus let her blood be shed, the woman, and how is her blood shed, i.e. menstrual blood, and let her observe, observe the laws of Nida, the menstrual cycle, so that she would atone for the blood of the man Adam which she spilled. So the reason why the mitzvah focusing around the whole menstrual cycle is given to the woman is an outcome of that Eve shed the blood of Adam by getting him to eat from the tree which was punishable by death. Thus her blood is being shed, menstrual cycle, and by her keeping the mitzvot involved with the menstrual cycle, it's a kapara and a tikkun, an atonement for shedding the blood of Adam. Mitzvah number one. Mitzvah number two. I continue reading from the Medrish Tanchuma. The Chala Mitzvah, from where, meaning do we see that it is an atonement, she defied the Chala of the world. Why is Adam called the Chala of the world? Why is a human being called the Chala of the world? So he goes on to say, For Rabbi Yossi, the son of Duskmaka, and then there's another opinion that it's a Rabbi Yossi, a different son of someone else, just as the woman rattles, Mikashkeshet, and over here it means needs, her flower with water, and then raises her Chala, so did the Holy One, blessed be he, do with Adam. For it is written, and a mist arose from the earth and watered the garden. And after that it is written, and the Lord God formed man from the earth. Those two verses. Now I want to just take you for a moment away from the Medrash. To make it clearer, I want to quote to you what Rashi says on the verse. Concerning the creation of man, he brought up the waters of the deep and watered the clouds to soak the earth. And man was created, like the baker who puts water into flour and afterwards kneads the dough. Here too, God, he watered, and afterwards God, he formed man. So again, the comparison. And thus, because mankind is the work of making a dough, water and flour, water and earth, therefore, the women took the mitzvah of challah to make kapara and tikkun for what happened through them feeding Adam, through Eve feeding Adam the tree, fruit from the tree of knowledge. Number two. Let's go to number three, the Shabbos candles. The mitzvah of kindling Shabbos candles from where do we see that it is an atonement? She, Eve, extinguished his, God, candle of a person. As it is written in Proverbs by King Solomon, the candle of God is the soul of man. Thus, let her observe the mitzvah of kindling the candle. So what we see here from this medrash is that the mitzvah, we're going to focus on challah, that's our parsha. The mitzvah of the challah is a tikkun for a wrongdoing. Okay? And that's why the women took it, because it's her who, ate for, who fed Adam. We're not talking about that she ate. We're not talking about that Adam ate. We're talking about that she fed Adam. And therefore, she's doing the tikkun. So, chala equals tikkun. What we're going to go on to say now is that tikkun equals humility, as I started in the modern-day issue, the selflessness. Okay, 
Let us begin the lecture. As you know, I always list first the mystical concept that we're going to talk about, after which we're then going to go ahead and wrap it all up and make it practical. So here is the list. Number one, the secret of the word challah in Hebrew, the word challah. Number two, the spiritual ingredients of the mitzvah of challah. Number three, the steps of making challah. And then number four, the ultimate humility of water. And let the amazement of Hasidus begin. So what's the secret of the word challah? So the underlying concept of the mitzvah of challah, we said, is tikkun, soul correction, kapara. And the underlying concept of tikkun, for any wrongdoing, is founded in humility, a breaking down of the ego, simply speaking. Every sin is a product of ego. I want to do this. I don't want to do this. Entitlement. And therefore, even though God said do, or God said don't do, my ego separates myself from God's will and says, I'll do or I won't do what I feel comfortable or desire to do or not do. Thus, the source of all sin is ego. The source of all tikkun is humility to break down the ego. And now let's see how this is found in the very Hebrew word challah. So the word challah is in three letters. Chet, Lamed, Hey. Now, what I am going to suggest, based on the teachings, is that challah is the journey from the chet to the hay. More, more specific, in Kabbalah, the primary letter of a word is the first letter of the word. Thus, we really see that the process of challah is to take the ches and transform it into the hay. We are not going to talk about the middle letter lama today. Now, just to be clear about the Hebrew image of the chet and the hay, so that we can understand it. I'm going to open up a cedar to the page where we teach children the alphabet. Anyone alphabet? And I want to point to the two letters, the chet and the hay. This is a hay and this is a chet. You will notice that there's only one slight difference. The chet the left leg is attached to the roof. The hay has a little opening between the left leg and the roof. Okay? Now that you know that image, I want to take you to what the Talmud says about the chet and the hay. And again, I'm going to actually quote, read it in English. Okay? It is because the letter chet, which is open only on its bottom, has a similar appearance to a portico, which is open on one side only, and it alludes to this world. How so? Where anyone who wishes to leave may leave. What does that mean? Every person has the ability to choose to do evil. That's called leaving. We're not talking about suicide. We're talking about leaving God's vision for this world is to leave the realm of right and wrong, Torah and mitzvot, and to do wrong. Now, where anyone who wishes to leave may leave, right. Now, let's go ahead and look at the hay. The Talmud goes on to explain. And what is the reason that the left leg of the letter hay is suspended, i.e., is not joined to the roof of the letter? It is because of one, if one repents, he is brought back in through the opening at the top. Okay. Let me just explain quickly what this means. So, we know that there's a verse in King Solomon that says, and the spirit of man tends to go upwards. The spirit of animal tends to go downwards. In other words, the man looks to become up more and more spiritual. The animal focuses on three things, right? Eat, don't be eaten, and produce offspring. Now, in Hasidus, that doesn't refer to animal and human. It refers to the godly soul 
and the animalistic soul on the left side. The animalistic soul is focused on the egocentric self-centeredness of I live, what's that, what's that, um, um, YOLO, you only live once, and therefore enjoy. Now, that concept of the animal spirit is always looking to go downwards, animalistic spirit within the human is always looking to go downwards into the physical, is represented by the chet. There's only one opening, and it's downward. However, when a person wants to do teshuvah, wants to say, i got to change my ways, there's something far greater than just living for the physical, which is the lowest experience of pleasure. I mean, even from the physical point of view, there's the physical pleasure of touch. But then there's the 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 um, pleasure of sight seeing something awesome and beautiful standing at the grand canyon standing at the himalayas standing at a a tree 2000 years old in yosemite park there's different concepts of pleasure and then there's the pleasure of music more spiritual then there's the pleasure of intellect just figuring things out, getting lost into an abstract concept and making it tangible. And then there's spiritual pleasure of God, having a relationship with God. So this Teshuvah says, I don't want to be just my animalistic side. I want to enjoy the human side. I want to be and develop the human side of which God specifically said, let us make mankind in my likeness and image, in our likeness and our image. And thus, he wants to do teshuvah. He doesn't want to go down. He wants to go up. How does he go up when there's a roof there? The answer is that the hay is open. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean that the ches only is one way and the hay allows for another way? For that, we're going to go to the mystical teachings of Pesach, Passover. Now, on Pesach, you are not allowed to eat chametz, leavened bread. You are only allowed to eat matzah, unleavened bread. Now, if you take the word chametz and the word matzah, they both have two of the same letters, the mem and the tzaddik, mtzit. And then the other difference is that matzah has a hay at the end. Chametz has a chet at the beginning. So again, we're going to see the difference between the chet and the hay, because everything else between the two are the same. And what is the difference? According to Kabbalah, the focus is on the fact that a matzah does not rise. It remains flat. That is the representation of humility. While chametz... Leavened bread rises, and that is all about ego. And thus there's the teaching that the celebration of Passover, which is a celebration of liberation, and more importantly, liberation of self-confinement, that is through humility. Thus we understand that the difference in the chet and the hay, which the Talmud refers to as chet is a downward hill, Hay allows for an upward, thus we understand it's the difference between humility and ego. Take it back to our word challah. So if challah is a transformation from the ches, first letter, into a hay, the last letter, what we're seeing here is that challah is a tikkun because it is the process of a breaking down and transforming this self-centered selfishness and ego into the humility of selflessness. And now let's move on, okay? Let's look now at the spiritual ingredients of the mitzvah of challah. Okay, so first of all, understand, let us understand that the challah, as I said previously, quoting the law, it doesn't begin until you mix the water into the flour. If you take raw flour, just plain flour, and you move it away, and you separate it, that's not the mitzvah. First, you have to put the water into the challah. And then there's the mitzvah. Now, so you have the two ingredients 
of the flower and the water and the process of this transformation from the ego ches to the humble hay begins by bringing the water into the flower. Now, in Kabbalah and Hasidis, they look at that on a practical level. What does that mean? Flower is separated crumbs. In Kabbalah, separation is of the other side, of ego. What does water do when you pour it into the flower? It unites these crumbs, separated crumbs of flour into one unified dough. So already by pouring the water into the flour, we're already doing the process of transforming the ego ches separation into the unified hay, the humble hay unified by water. Now, let us take it a step further. What is in the service? Remember, we're talking about not the physical mitzvah of actually giving challah, which is the most important part of a mitzvah. We're looking at the mystical, um, spiritual side of challah, which we have to perform within ourselves. The flower within us, the water within us, the chet within us, the hay within us. So, Let's talk about this on the level of service to God. Flower and water represent two different services to God. Flower represents in Kabbalah the service of Torah study. And why do we know that? Why is the association between flower and Torah study? Because if you look into Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers, if you look over there into chapter 3, Mishnah 17, it says the famous line, Im en kemach en Torah. If there is no flower, there is no Torah. Simply over there it means if you don't have food, yeah, you won't be able to learn. So you got to work for a living, earn a living, and then study Torah. Over here on the mystical level, we're finding, why does it say specifically flower, kemach? So we see that there's a reference that flower on a spiritual level relates to Torah study. Now let's look at what water represents. Water represents on a mystical level this service of prayer. How so? Because there is a verse in Lamentations, in the book of Lamentations, um, Eicha, and he says over there like this, Shivchi kamayim libech, pour out your heart like water before the presence of God, pouring out your heart is prayer. So now we know that flower and water represent Torah study and prayer. And now let's go ahead and understand how this is the process of challah, which is the process of transforming the ego chet into the humble hay. Now, to understand this, we'll go to the next concept, which is the steps of making challah, physically steps. So the first thing you have to do is, right, you pour the water into the challah, the unity, we spoke about that, and then you have to start kneading. What does that mean? What that means is that Torah study can sometimes be a slippery slope into ego and grandiosity. Oh my God, what a scholar genius I am. I figured out this piece of Talmud. I can give an amazing lecture on this piece of Ma'amar, chapter in Tanya. So sometimes it's more starting to slip into me feeling me than in me feeling the Word of God. Thus, we have to be careful that Torah study, flower, doesn't turn into chet, getting trapped into the ego, self-centeredness. And therefore, we move on to the water, which is the service of prayer. Now, the service of prayer is all about humility. Why so? So I want to just share with you a rule of our sages quoted in the Talmud. It's a Mishnah in Tractic Brachot that says, One may only stand and begin to pray from an, appro from an approach of the gravity of the head. 
Ein odem lispalel ele metoch kovet. Kovet is heavy of the head. Now Rashi says, what is gravity of the head? And he explains. It's to mean submission and humiliation. Now I am very sensitive to the word humiliation because humiliation and humility is two different things. Humiliation seems to be a negative thing. What's, what's going on here? So we're going to look into the Jewish law. What does it mean, shiflut? Doesn't say anava. Shiflut. Shiflut means lowliness. So therefore, the code of Jewish law based on this teaching says, and I quote, Before prayer, one should think about the exalted loftiness of Hashem and the lowliness of humankind. At some point, to be able to truly embrace the greatness of God, we're going to have to also embrace the lowliness of the humankind. Has a beginning, has an end, genetically programmed for self-centeredness in its most, in its most edel, refined sense of survival and until the sense of entitlement. But we have to embrace that. Now, I, I want to just add on, parenthetically speaking, you know, when you start saying, wow, that guy is such an amazing guy, such a kind guy, such a this and a that, right? Such a good thing. And then all of a sudden, this egocentric, dominating thought says, but so am I. In a sense that so am I, when you're talking about the other person, is actually not embracing the kindness and goodness of the other person. Taking this to Hashem, if we start talking about how compassionate God is, how unconditionally loving God is, and how kind and caring God is, but I'm also, it kind of negates the power of prayer to the point of pour out your heart like water is kind of surrendering that self-reliance isn't working. I need your help, O oh Father in heaven. So prayer is actually embodying the humility. Therefore, by mixing water and kneading it into the flour, we bring the humility of prayer into the potential arrogance of Torah study to make sure that my Torah study is not about me, but about the Word of God. Now, let's go to the next step after kneading is baking. So I want to just share, in general, in Kabbalah and Hasidus, fire, baking has to do with fire, fire represents the service of blazing love for God. And then, that's in general fire, right? Now, when we talk about baking, I want to share with you a mystical teaching on a, on a verse. It's amazing because this verse actually is read in the rebuke at the end of Leviticus. And it's read in a negative sense, talking about poverty. If we don't walk in the ways of God, excuse me, there's going to be such unfortunate poverty. Look what Hasidus does to the verse. So the verse. And ten women will bake their bread in one oven. Simply speaking, why one oven? Because, as our Rashi explains, they won't be able to afford the firewood. So they're going to make the most out of firewood by chipping in, getting firewood, and everyone sticking their bread in to bake. Now, the mystical secret within this verse is to read as follows. It's talking about the individual. And the individual has ten faculties. There's three intellects and seven emotions. And the worst curse that could be is when I don't have self-congruency. Today I want to be a bandit. Tomorrow I want to be spiritual. My mind's pulling in one way. My heart's pulling in another way. The, heart, the brain is trying to control the heart. The heart is trying to dominate the brain. So therefore... The blessing, the mystical blessing of this verse is that all ten faculties will work with a congruency in one focus, in one oven. I want to take this mystical teaching to a deeper level within the mystical teaching. The mystical teaching goes on to say 
that really we're talking about at prayer. And the concept of prayer in which on a more spiritual dimension, it's not about asking God for just our needs. It's about allowing for time in which I can focus on loving God as a centerpiece of prayer says in the Shema, and you shall love God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your might. We'll talk about that in a moment. Therefore, he's saying that the 10 women bake in one oven. And what that means is, baking means to use deep concentration and focus, which will give birth to love. That's the mystical concept of the baking here. And what is this baking concentration on one? We're supposed to focus and concentrate on the greatness and exaltedness of God, to focus on one God, and even deeper than that, to focus not on God as abstract, but to focus on the oneness of God, in which everything is God and God is everything, and my entire existence and sustenance is all from God, and by understanding that, will give birth to a fiery love for God. So once again, the process of baking is bringing the ultimate depths of prayer humility into my Torah study so that there won't be no potential of slipping into the eye and remaining focused on God. Now, until we reach, we have to go so deep into this love. Remember, who do you give the challah to? You give the portion of challah to the Kohen. That's what God says. So until we reach the level of loving God, upon which the verse states, and I'm quoting to you a verse from the Chumash, the book of Numbers, and I'm going to utilize the explanation, the mystical explanation in Tanya on the verse. The service, I'm reading the verse, the service as a gift I have given your kehuna, a gift that God gave the Kohen. Remember, we're talking about the Kohen. Challah is given to the Kohen. But now I want to take it on a microscopic universe level, the Kohen within me. And what does that mean? There's a certain love that when I do all I can to arouse a real, tangible, dominating love to God, then God gives me the ultimate gift of love, which is beyond the capacity of a human being on his own. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. Okay? Now, we're going to go to the ultimate humility of water. One more concept before we start wrapping this up. Let us take this humility of prayer even one step further. In general, in Kabbalah and Hasidus, we talk about the greatness of love. We quote the Zohar, Les Pulchona, there is no service as the service of love. But nevertheless, Hasidus is conscious and makes us aware that love is an experience of expansion of self. I love. And it's a yearning. It's me feeling my yearning to be one with God. That's what love is. I'm conscious of myself and my yearning to the one I love. Now, that is actually what we quoted before in the center of prayer. There is the Shema. The Shema is made up of three portions. By the way, the third portion of Shema is the end of this week's Torah portion. I want to just focus on the first two portions, which are found later on in the book of Deuteronomy. The first portion of Hero Israel, God is our God, God is one. What goes right after that verse? And you shall love God, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is huge. And in Kabbalah and Hasidus, it explains the acceleration of the love with all your heart, even more so with all your soul. And then there is a quantum leap into with all your might. And we've spoken about that previously in lectures. But that is huge. It's a huge love. Nevertheless, there is the yearning eye expansion behind this love for God. 
you shall love. I yearn. I love God. However, then let's go to the second portion of the Shema. And the second portion of the Shema is not driven by the yearning, but by the obedience of doing God's commandments. The first portion is focused on connecting to God, accepting God. The second one is all about the commandments, and that's why it begins. Vahoya im shamoan, if you will listen and heed my commandments. And what does the verse say there? It says, Beware lest your heart be lured away. Beware, we're now talking about that the second portion of the Shema is more driven by fear and awe than by love. Therefore, in the second portion of Shema, it quotes the commandment, and I quote, I command you this day to love God your God. So this is not the love of the first portion, which is driven by love. This is the love of the second portion, which is driven and focused on the fear slash awe slash obedience of God's commandments. Thus, in the second portion of Shema, even though the love of the first portion is greater but there's something virtuous about the second portion's love over the first portion. And that is that the second portion of Shema, when it talks about love, it doesn't talk about the I yearning expansion, but rather it's talking about what we call the contraction of the heart, driven to heed and absorb, observe the will of God. This is the ultimate humility of prayer, which we must need and bake into our Torah study. Meaning that the ultimate level of humility is that when even my love isn't about the yearning expansion of I want to belong, I want to cleave, I want to be one, but rather by the contraction of the heart in which the love is not a yearning upwards, but filled with the humility, forget that I want to go up. God wants me to be here and to do what's right. So even the love is one of humility. Then when you take that water humility, the hay of prayer, and you bring it as a president before you study Torah, you pray, becoming humble, focusing on God and God's will, then you carry that into the Torah, right? The pouring the water into the flour, kneading it into the flour, baking it into the flour. Then you have the transformation of the potential ego chet into the humble hey. Now, this is the service of the spiritual mitzvah of challah. Okay, and by the way, it, it, this is not in the teaching, but I just, I, I love to get practical here. That's what it means that before you move on with your dough, your bread, you actually, what do you do? You take reishit arisosechem. The first piece of your dough is not me. The first piece of dough, my hard work. I work to buy this flour and to buy this water. And I'm working on making bread. And I'm doing it so that my family and I can eat. Uh-uh. First, take a piece and give it to God. Now we know that when you eat the bread, it was already presented by that this is all about God. <laughs> On a totally different level, <laughs> we talk about the potential arrogance of dough. I want to tell you a cute story. A story of Rabbi J.J. Hecht is what they used to call him. J.J. Joseph Yaakov. And um, a phenomenal person. An outstanding, passionate speaker. And he has a son-in-law in South Africa, a Chabad emissary. And he was making a dinner and he wanted a speaker. Now he has an opening to one of the most phenomenal speakers that was alive at the time. So he tells his father-in-law, I want to fly you down here to speak at the dinner. And he tells him like this. He tells him, but please, I know that you sometimes go off the handle and get into the face of people to drive your point home. Please, be gentle. You're speaking to the 
upper crust of the Jewish South African community. With this warning, Rabbi J.G. Hech begins his speech with the following. My son-in-law told me that I'll be speaking to the upper crust of the South African Jewish community. So I wanted to look up what is the definition of upper crust. So I looked it up in the dictionary, and this is the definition. A bunch of crumbs held together by dough. <laughs> Only Rabbi J.J. Hef can get away with that and have people laugh without being offended. Um, but just getting to it, dough in all ways can sometimes be a slippery slope into ego to the point of entitlement, to the point of overriding what we know as right and wrong. So always keep the water, the prayer, the hay. Make sure that all the blessings of wealth that God gives us is not the chet, the flower, the ego, but the water. Driven. Always see ourselves as the bankers of God. Using our money to help God's creatures and God's vision for humanity, for the, for the animal kingdom, for the planet at whole. And now, in closing. In closing, let us be keen upon keeping our selflessness from being selfish. You remember that opening line, right? <laughs> yeah. We're very lonely when even our selfishness, selflessness that we do for others is driven and turned into selfishness. So I want to end with a story. A story is told that upon his deathbed, the great Baal Shem Tov was asked by his students, how would they know who is to be the successor? The Baal Shem Tov answered, he who knows the secret to being humble, he is to be my successor. The students then asked, well, how would we know if the secret he tells us is true? The Baal Shem Tov responded, if he tells you that there is no secret to humility, rather we must pray to God that he spare us from ego. That's the only true secret to humility. The simple truth is that even when we serve God, whether it be in Torah study, mitzvah observance, or acts of goodness and kindness to, for others, we are bound in some level of self-centeredness in which there is always a payoff, something in it for us, physically or spiritually, tangibly or emotionally. This is not something grossly evil, but just a paradigm from which we are genetically programmed to operate. To be able to get beyond our selfishness in any form or fashion, we must add water to our flour. We must knead our hearts and bake with concentration about the exalted loftiness of God and the lowliness of humankind. The lowliness of mankind speaks but about the descending nature of mankind when left unchecked. Yes, we must consciously pray to God that we be spared from the grip of self-centeredness and ego. Shabbat Shalom.